I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week needs no build-up, no introduction, so I'm not going to give him one. He is quite simply Stephen Hendry. Welcome along. Thank you. People talk a lot about natural talent, but I look at someone like you who took up the game around the age of 12, and within about three years, you'd done enough to turn pro. Now, that takes a huge amount of natural talent. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's no doubt in any sport, um, natural talent is, 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 is the starting point. Um, where, where, wherever you decide to take that, how hard you work it, whatever it is you do to enhance that natural talent, um, that's obviously up to you. But um, there's no doubt that, that you need that as a, as a sort of given. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've got a small table two weeks before my, my 13th birthday. Um, and within, th- yeah, it turned pro at 16. So obviously I had a, you know, I got better very quickly. Mm. I improved very quickly. Um, in those days, it was a bit different. That the sort of the criteria for turning pro, you had to win your national championship or the world amateur. Um, not like the, these days, you just turn pro and go to Q school. Um, so yeah, but still, it was um, it was very quick. Yeah, and also very quick was winning your first ranking title. You'd already won an invitational in Australia, mm. but it was the Grand Prix in 1987. You beat Dennis Taylor, and you'd only been pro just over two years. And most people thought this is amazing how quick this is. But I remember back then, Stephen, I sensed you weren't that surprised at all that you knew you had the ability to do things like that so quickly yeah but as, as I say even you know when as, as a junior um at 13 I went down to Pontins and won, won an under 16 tournament um then then won a British under 16s amateur senior title so all through I progressed very quickly and I think the biggest thing I had I was never phased from an occasion or a bit or a big tournament or anything I always was able to play um my sort of best snooker under under pressure um and I think also um, having good, you know, my parents always believed, you know, especially my father, that I would, that I would be successful, that I would be world champion. He, he just said, well, Steve, everything, everyone that he, could, he would meet, he would say, Stephen's going to be world champion. And then obviously my manager, Ian Doyle, when he took me over at 16, was, was pumping this in from his confidence, telling everyone I'm going to do this and that. So I think when, that, when you hear that, subconsciously it goes in and you start to believe. Um, so no, it, it, it wasn't a surprise. Um, I think the big thing about that Grand Prix was obviously beating Steve Davis for the first time in the quarterfinal because he was obviously the the the, the main man, the benchmark. Um, but yeah, it was um, everything just seemed to happen for a reason. And people said, among all those expectations of you, that you were going to take over from Steve at the top of the game, which is obviously what happened. People always talk about the classic UK final of 1990 as the moment that happened. Mm. But I would actually go earlier than that because I think when you beat him in the final in '89 and you played to a standard we'd not really seen before in a big final, that maybe yeah. that was, at the very least, the beginning of the handover? Yeah, I, I think um, the, 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 sort of the two-day final, um, when I beat him, and, and obviously the sem- I don't know which came first, I beat him 9-2, I think, in the semis. That was in 88, so you beat 9-3, right. and then the think, following year was the final. Yeah, I think that was the one, I think, because that was a long match, a double-session match, and, um, and that was the one that I thought, right, OK, I can... I can I, I have no fear of Steve Davis anymore because I was scared of him in the beginning because he played a, a, high, a more advanced game of snooker to me. I was basically all out attack, which well, basically was my whole career. But um, when you were a bit raw with that, um, I, I struggled against Steve. But when I beat him 9-2, I thought, yeah, I've, I've got the measure of him now. Um, unfortunately, I lost to Doug Mountjoy in the mm. final. But um, yeah, and then beat Steve the, the, the following final over two days, which was again a kind of a kind of milestone. So this was all... 
it felt inevitably leading towards you becoming world champion, which you did in 1990, still the youngest player ever to do it. And normally when someone wins the world championship for the first time, it feels like the end of a journey. But particularly because you were so young, the feel around that was that this was just the beginning. Yeah, and, and I think and it, sh- it shows in my um, celebrations, I think, throughout my career, because I, w- I was never one to show much emotion, um, whether it be you know, huge elation or tears or anything like that, because I've seen it as part of my job, basically, even then to, you know, I think I won the semi-final against Parrot and it made me world number one. Mm. So going into the final then beating Jimmy White, it was like, this was meant to be. It wasn't like a huge, this was, you know, everything was leading to this and this was it. It was just, yeah, this is, this is you know, it was my job, my ambition was to be world champion, and now, you know, what's next kind of thing. Well, what turned out to be next for you was domination for years and years, and you marked your territory once you'd become world champion and world number one with an incredible run through the first half of the following season where you literally won every ranking event there was. Mm. Do you look back on that now as just the absolute high point when you were just relentlessly winning tournament after tournament? Yeah, I mean, those sort of seven or eight years in the 90s... Um, were obviously great to look back on. That was that was my, I look I look back on that as my career. I kind of like don't mm-hmm. <laughs> I like to sort of disassociate with the rest of it because <laughs> I because I went downhill so fast um, in the sort of late late you know sort of two thousands and stuff. My career went went, went down so fast in, in terms of playing the way that that I knew I could play. I, I, um, you know, I played the, played some. I still won tournaments and I played good matches, but. Um, that, those six, seven, eight years of domination in the 90s was just, I took success for granted. Um, I, I, you know, you, you feel invincible, um, especially at the Crucible. And uh, yeah, it was great times. And with that vote of 71, Stephen Hendry brings a great championship to an He has beaten Jimmy Wright by 18 frames to 12 to become the youngest ever champion. I mentioned that first season you had as world champion, although you didn't end up retaining the title at the mm. Crucible. But then 92 comes around, and of course the amazing comeback against Jimmy White. And people say, how was he able to do it so often under pressure? But I think the impression I always got was that you were just able to completely sweep away the context mm. and to not even be thinking about the significance of it all and still be able to play just as freely, no matter what the situation. Would that be fair? Yep, absolutely. I, I didn't. I, it's almost like... Um I didn't really recognise pressure um, until later on in my career, when you, 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 you when you're not winning regularly and, and you 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 feel you try too hard to win. That's that I think that's a sign of feeling the pressure when you start trying too hard to win and want it too much. Um, for me, in the night, it, I didn't really. If I didn't play well, it wasn't really that I was overawed by the pressure. It was just that I didn't play well, or I, you know, my concentration wasn't right, or. I was outplayed by my opponent, which can always happen, but it was never pressure. I never, you know, really felt like I missed a shot because I bottled it or I twitched or anything. It was really, there was always, I felt there was a reason for missing it. 
um, until, as I say, later in the career, then there was lots of that happening. I think something else that set you apart, Stephen, was that a lot of players think it's about winning frames, whereas you recognised it was about winning matches. And that's why perhaps you were willing to take on such an attacking approach, because you knew even if it cost you a frame, in the long run, you believed that would come through for you. And it did particularly in the longer matches, and that's why you were so successful in the very biggest events. Yeah, I, I, I always felt I could outpot and outscore my opponents. Um, as you say, it's like, it's like a an attacking football team. You think if you score two, I'll score four, um, kind of thing. And I always, that was my outlook. I was always, you know, if if I went for a, you know, a, what people might perceive as a, a crazy shot and missed it, I, it didn't bother me. I knew because I knew the next frame I would get something and and, and get in and score. It was that um, that that was my game, as I say. And I knew I could overpower, you know, pretty much all, all, all the people I played. Not obviously all the time. I did lose matches, but generally that was my confidence that I could always out outscore and out overpower my opponents. But of course, no matter what the strategy, you couldn't have done all this without putting in huge amounts of work, which you did. So just how hard did you work at your peak, Stephen? How many hours a day were you doing? How intensive was it? I mean, it started when I was sort of 16, when Ian Doyle took over my, as, man, as my manager. Um, he installed this... Um, work ethic that uh, that if he was going to look after me in terms of taking care of all, all the out-off-the-table out business and um, just everything, I was just I was just there to play snooker. I was going to work. It was from then on, all through the night, it was basically five, six hours a day, every day, well, not every day, but if there was a tournament coming up, it would be every day. Um, but generally, that was my regime of five, six days a week, six hours a day. And it's always said about you that in those days, once you'd won a tournament, you stopped thinking about it. Your thought then was, how am I going to win the next one? Is that how it was? Pretty much. I mean, I remember times where I'd be in the Far East, um, having won a tournament or even not won a tournament, and basically I land in an airport and going straight to the club to practice. Um, or winning a tournament in the UK on a Sunday night and being back in the practice table, if not Monday, Tuesday. Um, because, as I always thought, it was like, it was my job just to win tournaments. It wasn't like win a tournament. It was a road, this long road, huge effort to win a tournament and then enjoy it and chill out and celebrate. It was, okay, job done. When's the next one? And you were chasing records and making history. And Tiger Woods famously had it pinned to his wall as a kid, Jack Nicholas's records. And all throughout his heyday, he talked about how he wanted to emulate those mm. and overtake them eventually. Was Steve your Jack Nicholas? Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, um, it was, I wouldn't say an obsession, but um, it was all about, you know, beating Steve's records for me. And, and I think it, it helps your career that you've got this target um, to, to, to always, your target for, for, to go for. Um, and obviously Ronnie was the same thing with, with, with me. Mm. He's got seven to beat, and I'm, which I'm sure he will. Um, but yeah, to have that, you know, I, w I wanted to be everything that he, that he did basically, and and that was that was the targets. It was it was mo most masters, most UKs, most worlds. Those those were the ones that I was really interested in. Unfortunately, didn't manage to take his UK mm -hmm. record. But um, but just I mean I, I mean my, when I first picked up a cue, Jimmy was my idol. But when I got serious in the game, it was all about Steve Davis, not sort of idolising. But he was the one that I had to to sort of follow and and and, and sort of. Because he was the he was the best player. He was the one that won titles. Jimmy was played snooker beautifully, but didn't win as many titles as Steve. So if I wanted to achieve anything, it was all about not copying, but it was the benchmark 
basically setting my setting my stall and how I worked, how I went out about the game, about how he did it. All through that era, I think the part of it that people remember most is all those finals against Jimmy White. Your first four world titles, remarkably, mm-hmm. all against him. Now, being you, Stephen, you wouldn't look back on it with affection if you hadn't won them. But of mm. course, as it was, you won them all. And with that, you can look back and say that was just a great era and a great friendly rivalry yeah. to be part of. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember one, one, I can't remember which one of those, it was either the third or the fourth. We were both in the practice room um, the morning of the, the Sunday morning before it started. And, and I said, I think well, like either, it was either myself or Jimmy, we joked to each other, like, you know, the other 30 players shouldn't bother turning up because mm. it's like we were done this we were just there um for these finals it was incredible um so yeah it was it was it was amazing how well we we both played at, at, at the crucible in those days yeah and you were relentless as i say and after all those you went on to beat nigel bond in 95 peter ebden in 96 it was just happening every year you were going there and winning and you were replicating that success in other events I remember speaking to you a few years ago and I put it to you that maybe some people when they talk about the greatest ever debate have forgotten how good you really were and you said that when you were researching for your book a few years ago and watching old matches you realised that even you had perhaps forgotten how good yeah. you were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean I, 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 had to, I couldn't remember all the things, the tournaments that I'd won in certain matches and I, you know, trolling through YouTube for, for stuff and, um, and yeah, I, 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 I did. I mean you kind of like, you get... Because I was never a great watcher, and I didn't of my stuff uh, when I was playing. I didn't watch things back, and so I didn't really take in really. Because as I said, it was a job. I played the tournament, then went to the next one. So I didn't really say, "Okay, I'll have a day. I'll watch that back and see how." I didn't never did that, and I never had any trophies or anything in my house to do with snooker. When I went in there, that snooker was finished. So, um, so yeah, to look back and um, and see, you because know, the, the, the thing that people say now is, "Well, the players, you know." I mean, I, I played. Um, practice with Ali Carter in Brazil a few years ago um, and I was and I was playing quite well and he says well, how, what, what are you doing putting all these balls and I said well I can play a bit you know <laughs> and he said well, yeah but he said when you were dominating the play, your opponents couldn't make 15 you know, so I mean it, it, it's, there's that there's, there's still a sort of attitude where the players back then were hopeless which is um, a, a huge disrespect um, you're but, talking about Jimmy White, Steve Davis, John Parrott. I mean, incredible players. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, the whole '90s that I dominated. You forget that's when Ronnie and Mark and John started in '92. They temper. Okay, maybe they're not the players. Maybe they are different players today. But um, look, the stand, I'm not saying the standards were the same. Standards have gone 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 forward, especially down the rankings these days. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I could play the game. Stephen Henry has proved. Once again, that he's the best player in the world. He's won by 18 frames to 17 in one of the best finals you're ever likely to see. The quest went on then for number seven to overtake Steve, and you lost to Ken, obviously, in the final in 97. Jimmy, amazingly, in the first round then in 98. But in 1999, it all happened for you, and you beat Mark Williams, and you'd got that seventh title. Mm. I remember at the time, Stephen, the feeling in Sheffield, those of us who were lucky enough to be there, was that this was forever. Nobody was ever going to overtake this record. Mm. Did you feel that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think... As I say, having you know in '99, so obviously the likes of um, Mark, Ronnie, and John, who were seen as the three sort of played, um, they hadn't got, got anywhere near that so far when I won it in '99. So I suppose I thought, yeah, that was going to take a, some effort um, for one of those to win eight, because um, I couldn't see anyone else doing it. There was no one around. Was, you know, I, 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 Steve wasn't going to win another one. Um, 
so so yeah I mean I, I did think it was going to be a huge effort um, but then you just think you know in sport records do get beaten um, but yeah I mean and, and even even sort of going forward until obviously Ronnie's Ronnie's sort of sort of career changed with the, the, the association with Steve Peters and he started to become a, a, a more a, a much better competitor and he started winning more regularly then I kind of thought when Ronnie got to sort of four or five I thought yeah this, this, it could get beat now you have said that you feel after getting the seventh one in 99 you let your standards drop mm. took your eye off the ball a bit that seems really surprising given how focused you'd been for so yeah. long but was it maybe a product of that that perhaps you didn't have it in you to keep that intensity going year after year because it had just taken so much out of you yeah I, I think there, there, there is that um, I think if Steve had won seven and I had to get eight, I probably would have kept up the intensity. I think unconsciously I switched off a bit, um, which I shouldn't have done. Obviously, I still won titles and I, I got to you know another another final. Did I? I did. You did. Two thousand and two. Yeah, two thousand two. Yeah, yeah. yeah see, I can't even remember now. So you almost um, won that one as well. But um, yeah, it's it's it was when when I won the seventh. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think definitely I, I I took my foot off the gas in terms of. The intensity of my preparation and, and um, it was almost as if, right, that I've done because it was always in the distance to win seven. You know, going through the nineties, Steve won six. It was always in the distance, and you know, as I said before, when you have that target and you reach that target, it's like, okay, what's the next target? And there wasn't one really. Okay, you could say you could win eight, nine, but no one had done that. So it's mm. like it's like a sort of invisible target, as it were, to do more. So yeah, it was um, my sort of outlook in the game changed. As we got towards the end of the 90s, it felt like you'd been dominating forever. But do you look back on that period now and think, actually, that was quite a short time in my life? Oh yeah, when I look back now, it's like it flew by. Yeah, the 90s just flew by because it was, it was such a great time. Um, you know, just expecting to win three, four, five events a season. Um, take it for granted winning at the Crucible. Um, yeah, it was. It was. It, it flew by. Looking back on it now, yeah. Let's come to the quick fire round, Stephen. Best place you've ever been on holiday? Dubai. Favorite movie? Wolf of Wall Street. Best TV show? Curb Your Enthusiasm. Your favorite song? One. You two. And the best you ever played? There's a lot to choose from there. Ooh. I mean, it's hard to seven centuries in the final against Ken in yeah. the UK final um, was obviously my, my best scoring achievement. Um, still didn't, it's not as if I won 10-2 or 10-3 with it. I still won, I think it was 10-6 um, or 10-5, I can't remember. Um, but yeah, I kind of look back on that being, being one of my best performances in, in, in any one match. Pink and black to finish with a century. Not too bothered about that. He's just... So pleased to have done it. Ray Reardon, six times world champion in the 70s. Steve Davis, six times in the 80s. But it's a magnificent seven times for Stephen Hendry in the 90s. I remember 1999, the World Championship party, and you were sitting there just quietly content, not really joining in the celebrations, but very pleased with what you'd done. I saw you at the party last year, and would it be fair to say that you were feeling a little bit of sadness that your record had finally been equaled? Um, 
Do you know what? And this and this is not. I mean, I, I, listen. I'm not going to lie. I didn't want Ronnie to take home a record, and I don't want him to beat my record. I don't want. But him I love to, I that honesty, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of people would pretend they're not <laughs> yeah. bothered. No, I don't want him to win eight. Mm. Why? Why would I? Yeah. Um, because you if, put all that work in to get yeah. the record. But if he does, then then fair play because he's a, he's 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 taking the game to another level, and he's an absolute like, just wonderful snooker player. Um, but once. It, it happened. It was almost kind of a relief kind of thing. I can't explain it. It was almost like took the pressure off me kind of thing. That um, not that I'm, I'm under pressure to do anything, but it was it was a strange feeling I had. Um, maybe not that night because there's still a little bit, a wee bit of sadness that he'd equal my record. But sort of the, the sort of week and sort of afterwards, it was like, okay, I'm not really, you know, he's got the mantle now to live up to. Um, it was almost like that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to lie and say I didn't want him to equal it because I didn't. <laughs> Also in the present day, where are you with the comeback? Are you going to keep going for a while? You're only playing occasionally. Well, it's not a comeback. Okay. It never was a comeback. Actually, to be fair, you did say that at the (laughs) time. It was never a comeback. And some people keep insisting, and um, the haters on Twitter, they know who they are, um, keep saying, you know, when I withdraw, uh, because I have a good reason. I mean, I was working on TV. My TV commitments are more important now than than playing snooker. So um, so I've got a wild card to play in events that I want to play in. And that's what I'm doing. I'd, my ambition for it was coming back was um, was to hopefully play a match at the Crucible again. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. But even that now, because it's so hard to, to to dedicate myself to practice now because I did it for so long and I would need to probably play even two hours a day, five days a week is a struggle um, because I just just you're just not in that mindset. Um, but yeah, I'd, listen, I, I I go to tournaments now and obviously invariably I get beat 5-1 or 5-0 or whatever because I haven't prepared and you can't expect to do anything. But it's not a comeback. Um, yeah, that word really annoys me. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I've got to say, you had no bigger fan than me back in the day, Stephen, back in the 90s. And I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed when you came back because I thought it was just the perfect way to finish. Yeah. But that first night you played Matt Seltz and I got to see you making a century break yeah. again. It was wonderful, rolling back the years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, I mean, I, my, my technique is, is 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 not what it was. I mean, there's still when I play on my own, um, you know, I, I, I play really, really well. But it's you have to be out there, and you know, I'm, I'm so ring rusty in terms of competing um, in matches. Um, the safety play is one thing. I've said to a few people that I think has gone so much higher in standard since when I, when I was playing now. I think safety plays improved so much. Um, so my safety game was never my strong point. So to bring that now, I'm really struggling. And also playing on the tables, when you're not playing on these fast tables at all and you turn up, you know, I'm, I'm a bit lost on the table. But listen, you know, one, I'll, play in one, I'll turn up for one thing and I'll beat someone. <laughs> Something will click on the day and I'll beat someone. Whether, where the, when or where that is, I don't know. But... Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's as I say, it's not a comeback, but um, yeah, we'll see where it goes. We talked earlier about how quickly you adjusted to the pro circuit when you started playing on it in '85. I think the same would be said of your TV work, and you really seem to enjoy it. And mm. you see a lot of people, particularly guys who've reached your standard, not necessarily in snooker, but in sport generally, who just turn up and think their gravitas should carry them through, and they don't have to make an effort. Mm. But you're the complete opposite. You always seem to want to really give people some insight. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and I and I. I'd like to think that I, I just say what I see. Um, if it's good, it's good. If it's bad, I'll say it's bad. Um, I think a lot of people thought I was like a, well, Joe Perry calls me a pantomime villain. Um, that I was, you know, being ultra critical for just for the sake of doing, which I wasn't at all. Um, but I think I've, I've sort of earned the right to be 
critical of, of, of players if they play a bad shot, no matter who it is or whether they play a good shot. Um, and listen, at the end of the day, snooker's all I know. So it, it's, 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 I, I enjoy it. Um, you know, a lot of the guys that I work with, I, I competed with, like say Ken, Steve, mm-hmm. JP, Dennis, JP, everyone, we, we, have a, we have a great laugh together, we have great fun. Um, and I do enjoy it. I mean, you get the odd match that you want to, you know, you, you just rather not be watching. <laughs> but um, but yeah, gen- generally, it's um, I, I enjoy it. And you've got another media venture going on now, your own YouTube channel. So what mm. was the thinking behind starting that up? Well, we um, between my, my manager, Gary, um, we obviously did start doing the Q-tips on Instagram. We do every now and then. We do a season where we'd ask people shots they want me to play and teach. And, and, and obviously that, that went really well. The next level was YouTube, where... You have to do it a lot more professionally. You have to get proper cameras in. Um, obviously, you can monetize through YouTube. I'm not going to lie. That, that's, that's one of the reasons as well. Um, but you can, you know, we've got a proper production company. Um, and it's never been done before. You know, a top player in snooker, you know, talking with other players, having a couple of frames, the top players, anyone. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm, my plans are to go not just interview top players, anyone really, um, and non-snooker players, celebrities and stuff who like snooker. Um, so it's something that's not been done before and it's and so far we're really excited about it it's going going really well what i really like about it is it doesn't seem prepared and i mean that in a good way it's just two guys just having a chat i saw the one you did with i think it was mark williams and just two old mates having a laugh with each other like you've been doing for 20 years and just chatting about the game yeah i mean it's 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 going whenever i when i get people on in the future where who are not obviously snooker players i don't know very well there's going to have to be a bit of research and it might be you know might you know it'll be different but but these guys i know them well and, and that's that's what we wanted we, we just wanted to be like two guys having a frame of snooker having a chat that's 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 what we wanted we didn't want it to be scripted or you know cut out all the bad shots and so we looked good better than we are i mean when i do my routines on it you know i keep the misses in because you know snooker's a difficult game um and to try and make out that you're you're perfect and not missing a shot it's just would just be silly um and yeah, we've got we've got you know obviously plans to to, to take it further, and um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it because it's a, it's something, you know, I, I was going to China pre-COVID, um, once mm. a month, twice a month, doing stuff out there with Joy for for Chinese pool, and obviously after COVID, China um, hopefully opens up this year, but I haven't been going back, so it's finding things to do really to in between tournaments to to keep yourself occupied. And just finally, Stephen, to come back to the book you did a few years ago mm-hmm. that. I mentioned earlier on one thing you made a lot of in the early chapters is how when you were young and starting out the snooker table was your escape mm-hmm. your safe place yeah did an element of that remain throughout your career that you saw it as somewhere to just get away from everything in the world and whatever yeah. might be going on and that that was your territory without, without a doubt that was that was a reason that I chose the title me and the table um it's not grammar correct it should be the table and I but I thought that wasn't a very <laughs> we won't that, worry about that you know, that was a funny yeah. title so yeah I mean yeah it was all the time no matter what was no matter what was going on even you know whether it would be in your personal life or your professional life or you know even even getting away from you know my manager who was probably giving me stick from losing a match or something once I got on that table it was just me and the table and that was that was it and you could just just immerse yourself in it and just pop balls and just be in your own world um, and even now, nowadays, if I go to the club, if I've got a qualifier or an exhibition, I'll go to the club where my table is locally and I'll, I'll play for an hour or two and it's just me and a tail pot and balls. And it's, it'll always be my sort of natural place. And you did it very successfully for many years and gave us many great moments. It's been great remembering them with you today, Stephen. Thanks so much for joining us on the Pleasure. Ball Snooker Tour podcast. Thank you for asking. Pleasure. 
Stephen Hendry beats Mark Williams by 18 frames to 11 to win the Embassy World Championship.